They didn't realize we were seeds. They didn't realize you were seeds. They open doors so others can walk through them. Your legacy is every life you have ever touched. I'm Stella Sagliari, and this is Salt the Podcast. Welcome to Salt the Podcast. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. My guest today is Melanie Jakob, who is a diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging consultant, and whose personal pronouns are she, her, hers. Melanie holds a bachelor in French and Spanish from the University of the West Indies KFIL campus and an MA in communications, media, and public relations from the University of Leicester. Originally from the Caribbean island of St. Lucia, Melanie has lived in Barbados, Martinique, Lyon, and now in Paris. As a result of her diverse personal and professional experiences, she became intent on exploring matters surrounding intersectional feminism, discrimination, and media representation. This is what led her to launch Melanie Jacob Consulting. As an experienced diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging specialist, Melanie advises multinational companies through webinars, workshops, and one-on-one -on -one coaching on how to create and implement best practice strategies that focus on amplifying and respecting the uniqueness of each individual's background. In this episode, we speak about Melanie's work as a diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging consultant, the story behind choosing this path in her professional life, which of course is inextricably linked to her personal life, because we all know that the personal is political. We also speak about racism, sexism, intersectional feminism, diversity washing, and misogynoir. And we also speak quite a bit about Chimamanda Negosi Adichie and her book Americana that follows us throughout the episode. And last but not least, we speak about black hair. Welcome, Melanie. Welcome to Soul the Podcast. I'm super happy that you're here with us today. Thank you for having me, Stella. I'm very happy to be here today. Nice. So share a little bit about yourself, who is Melanie, and through that, introduce us to our topic today. Well, for me, who am I? That's a question that's always difficult and a bit challenging to respond to, because I feel like I'm ever evolving, ever changing. But then again, for you to understand who I am, I think I have to give you the context of my background, where I grew up. So I'm originally from the Caribbean island of St. Lucia. And there, there was just like many things that like I went through, like growing up with two sisters who I'm very close with and um, being raised by a very strong mom. And uh, I think all of these things have shaped my life and making me become like the feminist that I am. And I describe myself as an intersectional feminist because I think we always have to look at and include the struggles of marginalized people in our feminism. Sometimes that gets forgotten. And um, the reason I identify with feminism as an intersectional feminist is um, just seeing like what I had to go through and what my mom had to experience as well as my sisters and other women and girls who look like me 
uh, we went through a lot of, or we still go through a lot of sexism in the Caribbean. That's something that we experience and nobody really likes to talk about, but it's very evident. And I think that really shapes your life, especially for someone like me who went to only Catholic all-girls schools from the time I was five up until the age of 18, well, 16, sorry. And then um, afterwards, like I moved to Barbados for my first degree in French and Spanish. And uh, it was along that journey that I started realizing there are things such as colorism and texturism and featureism happening in the Caribbean. Again, if you know anything about the Caribbean, we're very much a melting pot. There are people from like all different backgrounds, white, black, Southeast Asian, Asian, um, just melting together and you just feel like the, the culture is so rich. But we still suffer from colorism and that's very apparent in any place that has been colonized. <laughs> you usually, especially by white people, you usually um, just judge people based on the color of the skin, how dark they are, how light they are. And it's like the lighter you are, the more you're deemed as beautiful. And it wasn't until I was in Barbados that I understood that um, because people automatically thought that I belonged to a different socioeconomic bracket because of the way that I looked, but I didn't. <laughs> like, I mean, my family isn't dead poor, but like we're not the richest family around. Then that's what was associated with somebody who looked like me. And that was very interesting for me. Um, growing up in Tanisha, being the darker skin sister, everybody would tell me like, oh, how comes you're so dark and your sisters are so light skin or your mom is this color and then you look this way. So it was very shocking for me going into and experiencing that firsthand I'm in Barbados. And then after that, I moved to Martinique. So there were even more experiences. And at that time, I was um, teaching at a lycée and a college at a high school and um, an elementary school. And it was there that I really understood what xenophobia meant. Again, these are things you've seen growing up, but it's, it isn't until you're in the context of um, another place that you realize that this is what was going on in your own country. And um, people just making me feel like I was less than because I was from the Anglophone Caribbean and they being from the Francophone Caribbean. And, you know, um, we have these inter-regional, I don't want to say wars, but like this little like quips and stuff that people get into because like, oh, you're from the Anglophone Caribbean. That means you're this way. And you, you're probably from one of the poor countries and those from the Francophone islands. They're like, oh, we're French. We have French passports. So like we're better than you. And like there's these things that go on. But then again, it's until you're living in the place that you realize that obviously it's impacting um, you. And then after that, I moved to Lyon, to mainland France. And obviously, that's when I started experiencing racism. And you can just imagine how all of these different things from sexism, colorism, texturism, xenophobia to racism, the shock that that was for me. But then again, um, being like 27 to 28 at the time, it was something that was difficult for me to grapple with. But then I was still able to like, just, how do I put it? Just like, understand it realize that it's not people's feelings and the way what they think about me is not really important even though it does hit at times but it was what really pushed me into wanting to work in diversity equity and inclusion I think I've said a lot (laughs) so yeah that's who I am 
Thank you so much, Melanie. Yeah, you did say a lot, but I think it's important what you said. And of course, we will touch up on certain things throughout our conversation. Mm-hmm. And I think it's something that maybe I just want to take from what you just said before we move on to the next question is how when we move through the world, how power relationships and these kind of pigeonholes follow us and how in one place we can be read in that way. And then in another mm-hmm. place, we can be read in a completely different way. And um, yeah, I think you described it really well. And um, thank you for taking us on, on on this journey and introducing the topic like this, because as you said, through your own personal journey, you decided to become a diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging consultant. And you are also an inclusive media specialist. And you actually kind of already chose, uh, you, you kind of already described the story behind you choosing to do this work. But maybe you can say also a little bit about your actual work, like what it is all about for you. Yeah. So when it comes to my actual work, I feel like it's so varied because anybody who works in DEI, they can tell you that a lot of the times, not in every single case, but a lot of the times it's our personal experiences that have brought us to doing this work. So for me, again, it's going through all of these things, growing up in the Caribbean, moving to mainland France and dealing with racism and all the other isms that I spoke about. This is what made me um, realize that the world wasn't as perfect as I thought it was. Because like growing up, especially in the Caribbean, you're told, I think anywhere with any um, places where it's people of color, you always learn, or you have to work hard, you have to get good grades, and then you'll be able to excel. And then no matter what, people cannot take your education away from you. And yes, I was like coming into France, like I had like my master's degree, which is in communications, media and PR. And uh, my first degree was in French and Spanish. So I thought, okay, like, I'm prepared, I'm ready, Um, I'll be able to get a job here. And at that time, I was trying to transition from education because I had been teaching at um, schools in the Caribbean, teaching modern languages, Spanish, French, and English. And so I thought, yeah, that's behind me now. I have my master's degree from a really good university. I will be able to even if it's not like a well-paying job, I'll at least get my foot in the door. And I realized that wasn't the case. <laughs> it didn't matter how much I tried to sell myself. And again, I'm happy that I didn't get these jobs at the beginning. But at the time, it was very challenging for me because I thought, oh, like I'm well-educated, I'm smart, I'm a hard worker. If I just present myself well, people will just want to hire me. And I realized, no, they don't care. And they're just like, oh, you don't have enough experience in communications. Or oh, you're not French, so you don't understand the culture. Well, you cannot work in communications here or in media and PR. Or, um, you know, you're from the Caribbean. You don't understand what France is like. Or we're looking for somebody who speaks English, but as a second language, not as a first language. And it was just like, why am I not getting the roles? And why, what do I have to do for me to actually be seen as good enough? And it was like, in asking myself these questions and asking other people that I had befriended, especially other black and brown people, they were like, well, part of it is that you're not French and you're black. And for me, that was shocking because again, I had this 
you know, um, thinking that meritocracy actually existed, where it's like, yeah, you just work hard and you will get and you'll be able to like excel in your career. And it's like, no, people look at things outside of your how many degrees you have, how many languages you speak. And seeing that really started to make me angry. And I'm one of these people I'm always trying to say, like, what can I do with my anger? (laughs) Um, Instead of just being angry, what can I do with that? And in order to change the world and to make it a more equitable place, a more just place. And um, I think, you know, when everything is in alignment. So one day I was just in the bus coming home from work. Like I was teaching at a, a bilingual school as well as lecturing at a university at the same time. And I just saw this article in Forbes talking about DEI work. And I reached out to the person who was featured and it, it was Carol Cooper. And he told me that he spoke to me a few months later about the work, what it entails, different conferences I could attend, um, people I should network with. And that's what really um, made me interested and wanting to work in the field. But again, at the time, I was like, probably I should do my PhD so that I can be really prepared for me to get into this line of work. And um, COVID happened. <laughs> so again, I just said, okay, well, I'm not starting a PhD at this very moment. I think that would be wild. So I decided to just do something which was even probably even more wild than um, doing my PhD was start my own business. And again, it's been challenging, but I really enjoy the work that I do. I do workshops. I, I'm a keynote speaker sometimes. I help business, businesses, companies, multinationals with strategies and auditing and all different kinds of things. Because, you know, when you're freelancer your consultant it's like you just do a bit of everything <laughs> and I always try to like collaborate with other black and brown people and just try to do as much as I can so we can actually see some changes happening at these companies again it's not easy but I'm really proud of the work that I've done thus far and I'm really hoping that I'll be able to continue working in this field and just making progress with the clients that I have yes Thank you. It's you said I, I was then thinking I should probably first do a PhD to be more <laughs> equipped, right? And then yeah. again, I could hear that I'm not enough. I need to do more. I need to get yeah. another degree. And I'm so yeah. happy. I mean, I always wanted to do a PhD. I don't know if it's ever going to happen. So I feel you, but I'm yeah. happy that you said, no, I'm not going to do a PhD. I'm going to go out there with what I have because it's enough and I'm going to do the work that I want to do. I just want to add that because I could really hear it from your description when you mentioned the PhD. Um, and thing, it's challenging because like both of my sisters are medical doctors and like my cousin is an epidemiologist, a PhD. So it's like you always feel, especially when you're growing up in the Caribbean, you have to excel as much as you possibly can. So nobody can deny um, your presence and what you actually want to do. So yes. that's how I was feeling about it. Yes. And Melanie, I want to now talk a little bit more about the emotional labor here. Mm. Um, When I was scrolling through your social media, I saw that uh, one of your followers wrote um, with regard to your work. And it's a person that was also from the field, as I understood. She said, this work is not easy at all. It's like you leave a piece of your soul in every project, but it's necessary work. So I would like you to elaborate a little bit on on that comment and, of course, also include the aspect of emotional labor here, because one of the things that I found very important that people should understand is 
that, and I asked you also this before we we decided to have this conversation, if you're comfortable with the questions, if you're comfortable about talking about these things, because I also didn't want you to, yeah, to do this kind of educative work that many times marginalized communities um, are expected to do. It's really important for people who are not from a marginalized community to do their homework and educate themselves and not to expect from Black, Indigenous, people of color, LGBTQI plus communities, disabled people and other marginalized communities to do the work for them because it's tiring. Um, it costs a lot of emotional labor. It's disrespectful. Um, you're not a dictionary and um, you are more than that. You are Melanie. You are a complete person. And of course, I also asked you before um, we decided to have this conversation, if it's okay for you to talk about these things, because we also obviously want to feature the work that you do with this conversation. But I find it really important um, to talk about, about this. Yes. Yeah. So with all of that said, which is very important, thank you for stating that. I think when it comes to emotional labor, it is a big part of the work that we do especially if you're a Black woman or a brown woman doing this work, because a lot of the time you're speaking to people who have been historically in positions of power for many years just because of the way that they look and where they grew up, having to speak to them about um, why what they're doing doesn't work and why they should make changes. And that can be a very challenging conversation to have at times because if you before sometimes you even use these words people are already throwing them at you they're like oh I don't have any privileges I grew up poor and um you know like I worked hard and I believe in meritocracy and um we cannot find black and brown people to do this work because they're just not educated enough or we cannot find um, women to do this work because they don't have the degrees and all of these different things. And I know for you, it might sound funny hearing this because you feel like when you're on social media, so many people have shown that there are educated black and brown people that can be hired for any role, any job whatsoever. So why are companies still making these arguments? But it's very surprising that they still do make these arguments, especially, I can talk about the European context, because these are like the majority of the companies and people that I interact with. A lot of people still really do believe that there aren't educated black and brown people um, to do rules when it comes to like engineering, STEM, um, communications, media, whatever you think, they really think that there aren't people who are educated enough from uh, these historically marginalized backgrounds to do this work. So sometimes having these conversations, you really have to be strong-willed and you have to have a level of self-confidence that cannot be taught <laughs> because you really have to come in there and be like these are the statistics or even if sometimes we don't have access to that information in Europe but using like um, studies and knowing the research knowing the terms that you have to use knowing that you cannot just start arguing even if you really want to say something really bad you just have to keep calm and um, work on it later because you're trying to make a, um, a point and make people understand that the way that they're thinking needs to change. So that's why it's very emotionally 
laborious. It just takes so much of your energy sometimes. And that's why you have to be able to take care of yourself. And then you always, especially for me, you always have to present research because people always feel like, oh, if you don't come out of the numbers, that means it doesn't exist. You're just using anecdotal evidence. And um, all of these things are very stressful at times. And um, because you just believe that if a company is hiring you or if um, somebody from the C-suite is reaching out to you, that means they actually care about um, diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging. But certain times it's not really the case. It's just because employees are starting to talk about it. So they think that they should um, reach out to somebody, but they themselves are not even sure of what they're looking for. And then in Europe, it's even more challenging having a discussion about intersectionality because everybody says, oh, we live in a colorblind society. Racism doesn't exist. It's illegal to be racist. And you're like, there's so many things that are illegal. Yet still, people still do them. So why do you think, because um, you're in Europe, the creators of colonialization, of building empires all across the world, that um, you're exempt from that? So, and then a lot of times as well, as you know, when we have conversations about being more inclusive, a lot of people believe it's just equated to gender parity. And when we're talking about gender, uh, including more women, and what type of women, white women, nobody's checking for black and brown women. And it's very confusing for me, being from the Caribbean, seeing that at these companies, we have so, like, they're so proud to see over 50% women and 50% men or 40, 60. But then when you ask them, okay, so how many women of color? They're like, oh, like, I never paid attention to that. Like, I don't see color when I enter the building. And it's like... As soon as I entered the company or for whatever reason I'm there, I realized there's nobody that looks like me and nobody sees any issues with that. Another thing, nobody wants to talk about intersectionality when it comes to disabled people, when it comes to LGBTQ plus communities, members of that community. And it's always saying, you always have to explain to people why they have to look at it through that lens as well and why it's not racist to talk about race. Um, So that can be very overwhelming at times, but um, it's like I chose to do this work because I knew that there weren't a lot of people who look like me doing this work in France, in Europe by extension. Like even in France, it's so like now I'm starting to meet more people who are interested in getting in in the field. But then again, it's like a lot of people who are foreigners and I would really like to see more people who are like raised in France or like even if they're from like a francophone country like going into this work because it always seems like I'm a foreigner like bad talking <laughs> France and Europe and it's like it's not my country but yet so like I feel so empowered to do so so it will really be nice to see people who grew up in France black and brown people who are getting into this work because their experiences are very much valid in this work. Thank you, Melanie. I want to, maybe just for the audience, when I was um, first reading Melanie's website, uh, things that she wrote there reminded me of Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. And um, then when we had our first conversation, we quickly connected through her and her books and her amazing writing. And she will be part of today's um, podcast. And I actually already want to introduce her right now because In her book, Americana, and we will talk about that also later, and I recommend um, 
people to read that book. Those of you who haven't read it, please read it because it's very good for tons of reasons. And Shimamanda is very good. So even other books of her, we can highly recommend. But she says in the book, um, because the main character, um, she's a Nigerian who a big part of her life um, took place in the US. And uh, she also becomes a blogger about race. And in the book, there is this quote that says, the point of diversity workshops or multicultural talks was not to inspire any real change, but to leave people feeling good about themselves. They did not want the content of her ideas. They merely wanted the gesture of her presence. They had no, not read her blog, but they had heard that she was a leading blogger, in quotation marks, about race. And I think that really summarizes a big part of what you just shared. Sometimes it's just about, okay, let's have a talk about diversity. Let's invite a consultant. Let's hire one black person. And it's not about real change. It's just so that white people or people in power can feel just good about themselves and that they can say later, yeah, but we had this person coming and now we know all about diversity. And it just, yeah, it just, what you just said, just echoed that quote to me. And you also say on your website or your tagline reads actually um, the future is diverse. And um, based on that, and obviously on, on the work um, that you do, I want to talk about certain terms to dismantle those terms, to define those terms, because language is important. And um, I want to also mention that the work that you do, and again, you just mentioned that as well, is inextricably linked to dismantling the system. Because, um, yes, you can hire women, but they can be still part of um, oppression. They can be still part of marginalizing certain communities. So there is a lot more that is needed to initiate change. And I want to quote um, Professor Angela Davis here. Um, something that she said in an interview with director Ava DuVernay, she said, virtually every institution seized upon that term diversity. And I always ask, well, where is justice here? Are you simply going to ask those who have been marginalized or subjugated to come inside of the institution and participate in the same process that led precisely to their marginalization? Diversity and inclusion without substantive change, without radical change, accomplishes nothing. Justice is the key word. How do we begin to transform the institutions themselves? How do we change this society? So it's not just about let's hire a woman, let's hire a black woman, let's hire a bisexual person, let's hire a transgender person. It's also about changing the system and not just putting those people into positions of power, and then they continue to marginalize, oppress us, discriminate against people. And I want to talk about certain terms that you um, mention in your work, that you talk about, that are very important. And I would like to start with tokenism and with diversity washing. Yeah, so when we talk about um, tokenism, we're talking about using people from historically marginalized backgrounds and um, putting them into positions, usually positions of power, but making it seem that we're actually going to give them the power that is needed for them to carry out their roles 
without actually giving them <laughs> any of that power that they need. So it always like links to diversity washing, which is also having a company come out and say, oh, we believe in having um, um, in diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, justice, whichever one that's on trend on that day. And saying that, um, yeah, we actually care about these different communities and we're going to support them. But then at the end of the day, they're not doing anything to give them any agency or they're just hurting these communities. Um, and um, it's something that we see time and time again, especially in the U.S., where we see that there are companies who openly come out and say we support women's rights, we support Black rights, and um, we believe that everybody is a human being and should be treated equally. But yet still, they donate to politicians who are completely against um, these ideals. And um, it's just making sure that we hold companies to um, make sure that they're accountable in what they're doing and what they're saying. And linked to that, you kind of already, not you kind of, you did mention it earlier, <laughs> um, when you said when, when you deliver those workshops that people don't want to hear any anecdotes, they just want to hear hard facts and, and statistics and numbers and blah, blah, blah. Um, and that is something that I definitely don't agree with because I find personal narratives extremely important. And to me, that's also a part of academia and a part of, um, yeah, part of theory, our personal narratives. But you mentioned okay. also in, in that aspect, you speak about racial gaslighting. So when we talk about racial gaslighting, I'm sure all of us pretty much know what gaslighting is. So when we talk about gaslighting, it's making somebody believe that their thoughts, their experiences, things that they have witnessed completely do not exist and it didn't happen. So when we add the element of racial gaslighting to it, it's making black and brown people, people of color, indigenous people feel like the experiences that they've had with um, racism, making them feel like it didn't exist, <laughs> that they're making it up, that when they come and complain about um, probably their supervisor telling them, oh, um, I wasn't expecting you to do your work so well because you're a solution. Um, and then you go and like, talk to somebody else about it. They're like, oh, but are you sure that's what he was trying to tell you? Or we misunderstood and all of these different things. So, it's in your head, right? It's in, it's your, in head. your head. You're exactly. too emotional. You're too, I was just about to use that one. You're too emotional, which we get a lot. <laughs> Especially when you're a woman, everything you complain about is like, oh, you're being too emotional. It's like, what's wrong with being emotional? Men get emotional all the time. <laughs> we see um, cis, especially cis, um, heterosexual men just completely making people feel like the experiences are invalidated when they don't agree with them. Um, something I've experienced several times in my life. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, maybe before we move to the next term, I grew up in Germany. I mean, many of my listeners who follow me for a while, they know that um, as an immigrant child and I've experienced racism and, um, it and my friends experienced racism and my brother and blah, 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 blah. And it translated at one point into aggression and also into this idea of, is it right? Is it just in my head? Am I really experiencing this? You know, you, you become like a little bit, you think you're crazy or something. And then when I discovered 
that there's actually that there are terms for it, that there are words for the things that I'm experiencing, mm-hmm. that there are theories about it, that people have done research on that. When I went to university, you know, and I did sociology, I did psychology, pedagogy, and I came across many of those things. I encountered the term institutional racism, um, historical racism, many other things. I, I suddenly felt so liberated, you know, I felt like no, what I'm experiencing is real. It's not just in my head. It is real. And there have been books written about it and there have been workshops workshops given about it. So that's why I find it so important that we talk about these terms today because the existence of those terms also gives recognition to that those things are real and you cannot negate them, you know, from, from the other side. That's why I find it really important that we talk about some of those terms at least today. Yeah, I completely agree. And that's why I actually started doing the blog post that I do because I, in a lot of ways, um, it was like the first time that I was looking into the definitions of some of these words. And that's why I always like prioritize research and whatever work that I do, whether it be workshops or presentations or being a keynote speaker, because I like people to not only hear about my personal lived experience with the different um, things that I talk about and from like discrimination of different isms, but also having the vocabulary for them to be able to understand what they're going through, process it, and be able to share it with other people. Also use the words when they're communicating with other people who probably come into them, come to them in confidence, telling them about their personal lived experiences. Because for me, even with working with people, just the fact that I'm able to tell them, oh, this is what you went through. Um, this is the tool for it. This is how it can show up. This validates the experience and it makes them feel like, oh, finally, somebody understands what I'm talking about. And now I am able to share this information with like family members who probably didn't really understand what I was talking about. Because again, when you're like the first generation immigrant in like a whole new country, um, if you're coming from like a majority black and brown country and then you go into like a majority white country, um, trying to explain some of these um, experiences to family back home can be very um, troubling. There you might even experience some gaslighting as well because they've never experienced it and they probably think you're making it up. Especially in the Caribbean, we like to think that things like racism, that's like an American issue, doesn't happen back home. But they don't realize that just the fact that we're a former colony, we're very much um, playing into the dynamics of white supremacy and how it shows up in different ways in terms of like colorism, as I spoke about earlier, featureism and all of these things. But we just have to make sure that we're able to define it, explain it, give them the context and even just share research with them so they'll be able to better understand what we're going through, if they actually care to, <laughs> if they actually care to um, understand what we're going through. But that's the main reason I started blogging about my experiences. Yes. Misogyny is one word that many people know, uh-huh. but I don't know how many people know um, misogynoir. Uh-huh. Can you tell us about it? Okay, so when we talk about um, misogynoir, it's like a portmanteau of the words misogyny, hatred towards women, and then noir being black women. So specifically, the hatred towards black women, especially in society and the systems that have been put in place. And just like any other thing to do with white supremacy, it's like the darker your skin tone, the worse you experience things within this horrible patriarchal societies that a lot of us have grown up in. 
And um, we see it play out in so many different ways in so many different countries, even in majority Black countries. But um, misogyny can look like um, not hiring Black women because and we because we say oh they're angry they're always angry all the time so we're not going to have them in our place of work or also saying that oh like black women don't deserve to be happy they don't deserve joy and it's a conversation I keep on seeing happening more and more now I'm on social media when we have like black women talking about their experiences and then there are men black men white men um, Asian men discrediting them and their experiences. And sometimes it's like you might see one group of people in society um, praising women of different, who are non-Black. And then when it's like a Black woman who is doing the same thing, especially one of her darker complexion, we're seeing that there's just complete hate and vitriol being um, shoved towards this like woman's experiences. And even recently, I'm not sure if you saw it, but there was this TikToker who I think she was talking about wearing her hair in its natural state, like not wanting like to stretch it out or anything. Because she and then she made like this very quick joke talking about, oh, I think I'll only be able to attract like a white man today with my hair looking like this. And if you know anything about the black community, we're always talking about our hair. Yes. <laughs> and um for so many different reasons. But again, because of texturism, you know, like the softer your hair looks people associate you like think that you're beautiful and like the more coarse your hair the less beautiful you've seen all of these things are very problematic and we have to work through it in the black community but moving on so she just made this like very quick joke talking about this and then we just saw a whole set of men especially black men in the comment section completely belittling her gaslighting her telling her is because she's ugly that's why she's not able to get to um, attract any men um i mean i can understand like white men very much adding to white supremacy but like saying um you know like how dare you talk about like our community in this way and just complete hatred towards this woman who was just like and you could see it was like in a very comedic way And um, these are just like everyday examples that are just way too common of how misogynoir plays out in our society. So, yeah. Yes. And that Mm -hmm. actually brings me back to Chimamanda. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) She said in the novel, hair is quite political for black women. Mm -hmm. Oh, she says about the novel, actually, hair is quite political for black women. Mm -hmm. In the novel, I had to restrain myself because I really just wanted to make the whole book about natural black hair. And this is also a part that you talk about in your workshops and the work that you do, this idea of the good hair, the professional looking hair and all the other crap that people throw at um, black women, brown women. How do you deal with this in your work? Oh, that's a really tough question, to be honest, because in dealing with this in my work, it's me talking about my personal lived experiences, but again, using that research aspect, because there are a lot of, especially in the US, there are a lot of um, research articles I'm just talking about the presentation of Black and brown women, especially Black women um, in contemporary media. 
and especially like in the housewife shows and just different some reality TV shows, like how black women are presented. Even like I remember Beyonce when she had her daughter um, um, Blue Ivy, and people were complaining, telling her oh, why is she combing her, why she's not like brushing her daughter's hair, and um, you know making it look neater. And also there was, I think it was, I can't remember her last name, but I think it's Gabrielle. And she was like this, um, I might be saying the name incorrectly. But anyway, she was like this gymnast, American gymnast. She had just won a gold medal and everybody was like, yeah, you just won a gold medal, but look out to your hair. Why isn't it brushed? And it's like, why are we always, and that's like another, that's like an extension of, well, very much linked to misogynoir. But why are we always like judging black women on our hair? It's like, it's not thick enough. It's not long enough. It's not short enough. It's not well-kept enough. And me growing up in St. Lucia, I have a lot of issues with my hair, even to this day on what my hair looks like, what people think it's supposed to look like. Growing up with sisters, two sisters who had like a softer texture and longer hair than me and people making me feel like my hair wasn't nice. <laughs> it's like, oh, good hair. Like you say, oh, like, you have good hair, your hair not nice. That's a very um, solution thing to say. And um, people telling me, like, why is your hair texture like this? As if I had, like, any control over what my hair would look like. And um, so it was very challenging for me to even wear my hair loose. It's only a risk of, like, probably in the last year that I started wearing my hair loose. And the only reason I did so was because I wanted to tell myself that I can accept my hair in any way, shape or form. And like, I have to embrace it because it's going out from my hair, um, from my head, sorry. But um, just talking to my friends, whether they have locked hair, whether they have straight hair, whether it's chemically straightened or whatever, we see all of us have different issues with our hair and how we want to present to the world and who makes us feel like, oh, this is professional and not professional enough. Or this is, um, you need to do this to your hair. Why aren't you, like, <laughs> it's just so frustrating. And like, I don't even know how to explain it to like white people sometimes especially to my white friends because they just don't understand because they're like well your hair is thick like so what's the problem like but then they don't understand like all the layers of what's yourself worth how it's like tied into like what your hair looks like and just people just judging you whether it's even like trying to get a job you're wondering like if I have my hair up will it be most likely to hire me should I wear my hair down will I not seem like I'm um, interested in getting a job am I seeing it's like all these different things is just so tied to the presentation of black hair that I don't even know how to explain it sometimes. Like I can mention it in a workshop if we're talking about beauty standards and talking about like black women, our relationship with our hair. But there's it's one of these things, it's like you really have to experience it for you to be able to explain to other people and or not even be able to explain to other people, just say like, oh, my hair, and then all of your friends get it. And if they're black and brown, because there's just so much, like it's political, yet it's beautiful, yet it's tied to your self-worth. Oh my gosh, I don't even know how to begin this conversation sometimes. Thank you. I just find it horrible that you have to still explain it to people, you know, that, that even that, that even what made me sad, what you just said, I don't even know how to explain it. And I just feel like why she has to even explain it, you know, why? Like 
nobody ever questioned my hair or how I have my hair or that I have to talk about my hair or, or, or whatever. And it's just, again, another layer of, of the emotional labor that you still have to talk about it. You know, I mean, obviously I asked you about it and we shared the questions <laughs> in advance, but, but it's, it's, it is just, it is just so horrible, you know, and I've lived also with some of my friends, their transition from using all these chemicals. And then one day saying, no, I'm going to have my hair now natural. And I really don't give a shit what you think or if you like it or not, because this is who I am. And being part of their journey has been, has, I was so, I had so much joy when I saw them saying, no, this is my hair and I'm not going to destroy it any longer. And I want to be like this, you know, and I don't care. This is who I am. And um, yeah, I don't know if what I'm saying right now makes sense, but it's just, no, completely it makes, makes me sense. angry. You know, <laughs> it, it makes me just so angry and yes. Thank you for sharing so much about your personal journey, about your work, about being so open. And I don't want to ask you for any more words. And if people have questions about other words, they can look them up or they can follow <laughs> you or they can hire you because yeah, uh, that's yeah. it about terms and words. <laughs> I hope people who listen got the point. So get yourself a dictionary, follow Melanie, book her for a workshop or read some other books, uh, read Audrey Lord, um, mm -hmm. read yeah. uh, Chimamanda, read many other people. We can mention a few also later or go on Google and find out yourself who you have to read. And who has been your soul? Who has had an impact on you? Who has inspired you, Melanie? My mom, honestly. Like, I just love my mom so much. And, you know, it's not always easy, obviously. Like, in a family, people disagree about things and you question you know, what's love, especially when you're a teenager, you're like, do my parents really love me? Do they understand me? But then now I'm just so grateful that I have the mom that I have and then she raised my sisters and I the way that she did. And she just continues to love us and support us. And no matter what we're going through, like I can just talk to my mom about it, even if it's like, I'm like, should I be telling my mom this? And I still tell her. And then we laugh about it. And she just sits down and she listens to me, even though she's like, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what advice to give you. But then it's just like so nice to just see how hard my mom has worked for us to be able to go to school, um, making us believe in ourselves, always supporting us, being like, okay, you're going to go and get a first degree now. When I was like, well, I'm not really sure if I want to go to university. My mom was just like, uh, this is not a question. You're just going to university. And like even having a serious talk with me about doing um, Spanish and French at university. Because at the time I was like, oh, I don't want to do French. And like, thank God I did it now, obviously. But um, I don't know. Like, I'm just so blessed to have the family that I have. And I know I sound like... Um, this like stereotypical like you know perfect family person but it's like I've seen what other people have gone through with their family so like I'm just so grateful that my mom is the woman that she is that she's the hard worker that she is that she's shown us like what it means to um just work hard but also be caring and giving to others while also making sure that people don't mess around with you <laughs> because she tells it like it is <laughs> and like for her it's like nobody gets anything about her children if people were comparing us she would be like stop talking about my children I love them all they're not special and um I just love her so much she's just so great honestly she yeah, has your back <laughs> she, has, she your has, back. has my back honestly honestly she does 
so important yeah. so important mm-hmm. yes and to whom do you want to pass the salt and what do you want to say to her him them well this will be a little bit selfish but i'd like to pass the salt on to my offspring if ever i'm to make children <laughs> <laughs> if, if I am to be blessed someday with a child or children, I would like to pass the salt on to them because this is the whole reason that I started working in DEI because I felt like I wanted to see a better world for future generations because I didn't want to bring children into this world if God is to grant me and the that um, privilege of having children. I don't want them to come into this world and be like, mommy, what did you do to change the world? Like, why were you just accepting of like, the racism and all of the other isms that you were facing? I want them to be like, well, my mom actually made a change and like she actually contributed to like how this world is functioning now, even if it's in a very small way. I just want them to be proud of me. And then hopefully they will like advance the cause and um, pass the salt on to another generation, and just make the world a better place. Wonderful. Yeah. I have a lot of hope in our children. I already see it, actually. Yeah. Well, you already started. I'm yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I see it in my kids, but I also see it in other kids. No, I asked you true. so many questions. So what is your question? <laughs> I'm curious. <laughs> well, to be honest, my question was, why did you start the Souls podcast? I'm just joking. <laughs> Maybe just I for just the audience. To. I had to. No, I, had to. I had to. <laughs> no, no, I was just joking. I just had to because of what you told me at the beginning. Yeah, maybe just just for the audience. I in ninety five percent of the cases, I don't know the questions. Yeah. Uh, I get them really on the spot. But I said to Melanie, I hope you have a question for me, and it's not about salt or why I started salt or what is salt is all about. So yes. <laughs> Okay. So my real question is, <laughs> so my real question is, um, like, how do I put this? It's like, who, who or what helps you to just relax? Like, what do you do for you to like take care of yourself? Because it's a lot of work, like interviewing people and hearing their different takes on the world. So what do you do to protect yourself and your energy? Who or what helps you to do that? Wow. Do you know me already longer? <laughs> Because, <laughs> um, yeah, this is one of the things I've actually, actually been struggling with my whole life mm-hmm. to rest mm-hmm. and um, to look after myself. Um, it has, I think most, most of it has to do with my upbringing um, that I always felt rest is a sin. I cannot rest. Mm-hmm. I have to be always mm-hmm. work and produce and uh, um, be better in order to be accepted because I'm a foreigner in a foreign country, but also being raised maybe in a bit of a, I don't know, conservative environment. Um, Yeah, actually to always work and a lot of tough love, you know, so not a lot of softness, um, work, study, um, you're never good enough, more, 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 more. So for me, a rest is something that I'm still um, I'm still working on it to really learn how to rest um, because rest is also part of the revolution. It's also part of fighting the system that tells us that we constantly have to work and produce and be productive. So 
yeah, it's it's a journey for me. Um, so I'm still on that journey. And um, one of the things that helps me to rest is my daughter. Just um, she has had a, a huge impact uh, in my life. And just holding her, smelling her, cuddling her. Aww. She has very big cheeks, kissing her. Just I always Aww. tell her, you give me life, you know, you you help me to breathe. So this is this is one one thing. Um, also my partner, because he's very calm most of the time. And um, he accepts me and in general people for who they are. He's not somebody who has demands or do you feel like, oh, I didn't do this. And now the house is a mess. And, you know, I mean, this is maybe very stereotypical, but but he also um, makes me rest. His, just his presence helps me to rest. Um, yeah, but but I'm I'm still working on it. Like I sometimes do too much and then my body shows me. You did too much again, you know, because I have a lot of energy yeah. and I like to constantly do things. Um, but I'm I'm working on it. And maybe right now for the audience, um, I'm in Greece right now where I'm from and I'm on the island where my father is from, where I spend my summers. And we have a very beautiful house in the nature. And this place is actually my resting place. So it's really funny that you asked me this question because it's something I'm still struggling with. And I'm right now in a place that gives me rest, that I'm really connected with, with the nature, with the, with the soil, with the earth, and where I feel really calm and beautiful and good. And it's like there's the sea, the mountains, uh -huh. the stars, and I'm really grounded here, you know. And, yeah. yeah, it's really a place where I can rest. So thank you for this question. Yeah. Hopefully it's um, an original one. <laughs> yes, very much. And it, as I, I said, like I'm, the other actually, one. <laughs> I'm actually in my resting place right now. So it's, yeah. it's, it's crazy yeah. that you asked me this question. Thank you for that. Yeah. You're welcome. And thank you for the conversation. Thank you for your honesty. And as I said at the beginning, one of the things we connected uh, through was Chimamanda. And uh, I used a lot of not a lot, but I use some of her quotes today. And uh, I was thinking, what is a quote that you chose from Americana, from the from one of her books um, that you would like to share today? Because we want to honor her today in this episode. Yeah, so obviously, you probably know this already. It would I would choose one that's linked to her. <laughs> yeah. So the quote is, I mean, it's not one of these like cookie cutter inspirational quotes, but it's one that makes you think. It says, relax in your hair is like being in prison. You're caged in. Your hair rules you. You didn't go running with Kooch. She's talking to, I think it was a boyfriend at the time today because you don't want to sweat out this straightness. You're always battling to make your hair do what it wasn't meant to do. And I can completely relate to this because just being a black woman um there are times when I'm like uh if I wash my hair today I wouldn't like how I'm um, how it's going to look tomorrow and like I have this big meeting or there's some workshop or whatever on um in two days so you know like should I wash it today should I just make it last a little bit longer like <laughs> you know what I mean all of these different things and you're 
constantly thinking about your hair and how it looks. And even when you think you're over it, um, somebody might make a comment about your hair and it just like brings you back to feeling bad. And it's like the self-confidence that you've tried to work on and just your hair confidence, all of these things are being um, tested daily. So I don't know, like, it just makes me feel like she understands, obviously, she understands, but um, it's just one of these things I can just relate to. The whole book I can relate to, obviously, but then it's just her talking about hair and a lot of the book takes place in hair salons and when she was getting her hair braided and talking to the women yes. and how they were judging her because like um the kind of hair that she hairstyle that she wanted to get and talking to women from um I believe it was like Congo the Congo at the beginning and like them judging her because of the hairstyle she wanted to get and you know all of these different things about being a foreigner in the U.S. but still being separated by people's perception of how you look and how you present yourself um it's just so lovely and i think everybody should read this <laughs> book <laughs> apart yes. from the quote but it's just a wonderful book thank it's you and it's not what it feels like yeah 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 she touches upon so many different topics yes and she does that in yeah. an amazing way she's such a great writer thank you melanie so for sharing great. this quote um it also you're welcome combines what we discussed today and mm-hmm. for people who who have been listening um yeah share this episode because (laughs) that's what i want you to do actually follow melanie see what um yeah have a look at her amazing work the things that she does and um yeah and do your work do do your part go to google search search for books that you can read and don't expect marginalized communities to do all the work for you and this of course goes not to all of my listeners but Yes, to some of them. So I find it really important that we all play our part, we all do our work, and we don't expect just one community or marginalized communities to do the work for us. And I want to finish with this, and I want to thank you, Melanie. And yes. Thank you, Stella. Honestly, it's been a pleasure. I really had fun just talking to you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. You're welcome. Something that is loved is never lost. Stella Salieri and this is Salt the Podcast. Salt the Podcast. Salt the Podcast.